0: Advanced Principles Podcast, or APP, was created to be an outlet for like-minded individuals to share in the broader conversations on leadership, retail market updates, and incredible personal success stories. On APP, you will hear a collection of stories from the titans of the retail industry, as well as thought and practice leaders covering the spectrum of the economy. Please click the subscribe button and look for the newest episodes to be released.
1: One of the things they were all required to do is put processes in place. First, got to get
0: everyone integrated on the back end if you're going to make this work. Shannon Robertson, a lifetime Master Certified Professional in Financial Services, is the Executive Director of the Association of Finance and Insurance Professionals, commonly referred to as AFIP. In a little over seven years at AFIP, Shannon has been instrumental in streamlining operational structures and processes. He's always looking for innovative ways AFIP can support its members, agents, and dealers. A natural trainer, Shannon also conducts AFIP certification boot camps. Many of his ideas for service enhancements, such as visual tools and acronyms that make training even more accessible and memorable to boot camp attendees, come from feedback in the field. Prior to his time at AFIP, Shannon worked for d Leasing as a leasing consultant. Earlier in his career, Shannon gained 13 years of experience in financial services at Fidelity Investments, where he first started in compliance. He also worked as a managing director, overseeing an $800 million book of business, representing 52 clients when he left Fidelity for the automotive industry. All right, Shannon, thank you again for being on an app. I'm super excited to have you. Uh, so many great things to talk about that are going on in our industry right now that are so relevant and important for dealers. Uh, so thank you for taking the time out
1: to uh, be a guest. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So before we dive in and really start to unpack um, your journey over the last crazy nine, 12 months with all these proposed changes and you traveling the country and learning as much as you can and then sharing that wisdom and knowledge with everybody else, why don't you give us just a little bit of backstory you how you got to where you're at and really um, what AFIP is and and kind of what it means to the industry just to set the stage for some people that may not be as familiar with AFIP as
1: others absolutely I'll give a just a elevator speech on on AFIP so AFIP's an association of finance and insurance professional everybody calls it AFIP Uh, I think it's comical that in today's world it's even become a verb you know have you been (laughs) afip But but with that said AFIP is a nonprofit organization that was created in 1989, and the reason why AFIP was created was to create a third-party entity that would provide federal and state regulatory training to anybody who really touches a finance contract. The other thing I like to point out is that the industry created AFIP. It was founded by members of the industry. It, today, it is a still, still a nonprofit organization, right? It, we stay independent. I don't have a vested interest in your process. I don't compete with companies that sell products. And that allows us to provide the dealerships with some due diligence. And then one of the things that we've seen in the most recent environment as an advantage of AFIP that I don't think that we realize or the founders realized, but if we look at recent regulatory enforcement action on dealers, Most dealers that have been fined or had enforcement actions, it wasn't that the entire dealership maybe was doing something wrong. It was one or two locations that had bad practices, right? And there were maybe one or two employees at those dealerships doing something wrong, surrounded by people who knew it was wrong and said nothing. And one Mm -hmm. of the advantages of AFIP certifying your staff is that you create a knowledge level and a confidence level with your employees that if they see something that's wrong, they are more likely to shut it down and not allow that to spread or hit a level that could possibly put that dealership into danger.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great overview, and I know we'll touch on a couple – uh, specifics, but speak of generalities about some of the bad actors or bad practices that you've seen and you've read about and, and been privy to um, over the last couple of years. Now, obviously, there's been a whirlwind of information. We've got some positive news yesterday, which I'll let you speak to about from some timing changes. But there's been a lot of discussion in the last 6, 9, 12 months about proposed changes Um, going through a process that's very different than any of us have been familiar with, just trying to fast track certain things. What do you think was the impetus behind that? And then the sense of urgency to get it done so quickly and really outside of the process that you and I have been more familiar
1: with? Yeah, I'd like to say it's not politically driven, but I think some of it's politically driven. I mean, not to get into a politics conversation here, not to choose sides, but I think some of it's uh, politically driven. Um, I think we have an agency in you know as we take the FTC, um, you know that is three members to two, democratic to Republican, and right now with one of the Republicans stepping away, right, even has a, even having a greater share, um, having a Democratic president, I think there is a sense of urgency to push through as many changes as they believe they can. In the short time frame they may or may not have i can't predict the future of what happens with mm-hmm. the future elections but i think that has some set, that has some impact um the other part is we have two people running both the ftc and the cfpb who have been very outspoken on their i would guess opinion on car dealerships right they're not uh, they've been very clear they don't believe that the way car dealerships run or the automotive industry runs Right. The way we run our industry is the right way to do it. Right. So we have been pinpointed. They have called this out and they have been more aggressive in their actions against us. And some of what's driving that is under the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Act, they were given an additional area or avenue to assess enforcement action under what's known as UDAP, unfair and deceptive acts or practices. And once UDAP was formed. There was that separate window or that opportunity where they could literally go after dealers for what they perceived were unfair deceptive acts or practices. And to be clear, I'm not saying that not every dealer they went after didn't deserve some of the action, but it does give them almost kind of a carte blanche type of window to go after dealers using that or hiding under or under the umbrella of UDAP.
0: Yep. And, and unfortunately, some in our industry have made us all part of an easy target. Um, it's it's just we're all getting kind of caught up in it. And and being on the inside for as long as we both have been, we know that that is such a few number of actual individuals at certain stores um, that has really tarnished the entire name. And I think some of these proposed corrective actions have gone too extreme, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Some of your, your feeling of the proposed language that's out there. Um, but before we get there, I do want to talk about since this really became public and the proposed changes were put out there in a memo and the the feedback time and the commentary window was open, there was a lot of pushback. Um, and it was it was good to see somewhat of a united front because our industry, in my opinion, has largely become fragmented. I think a lot of the state associations are not as prominent as they used to be. I think NADA within certain dealer areas or certain geographic regions is not as prominent as it once was. But it does feel like there's a little bit of unity in formatting a response to this. And do you how do you think that is coming along? Do you think it's a unified front or do you think there's more unification that can happen to help educate and then potentially, you know, push back on the unreasonableness of some
1: of these proposed changes? So I always there could always be more unification, right? Let's be clear. I mean, but in an industry where we have such a large number of rooftops and diverse and from California all the way to, you know, from coast to coast, um, you know, obviously we, we could see more unification, but I do agree with you. I think that when the proposed rules came out, they were 126 pages, 26 proposed rules. They were asking us to uh, answer, I think it was 43 or 49 questions. Um, a lot of dealers said, this is really lengthy. I don't even know how to interpret this. I want to get an attorney involved. So, you know, with the way that it was done, it pushed a lot of dealers to reach out to their state associations, their local associations, and to the National Association for assistance on what are they actually trying to tell us, right? And how do we communicate to them our thoughts on this? Um, I think NADA did a great job, Tree, and everybody through the legal and regulatory affairs with NADA put out quite a few communications on it there's a great video out Um, i know some of the state associations were very proactive in getting with their dealers and letting them know that they would put the comments on file on behalf of the dealers Um, so there was a unified front we felt like the message needed to be consistent and i Mm -hmm. think that's as we went as as you know we did a webinar for you guys but as afib did 25 26 27 webinars during that 30 you know 60 day window right mm-hmm. there was a lot of conversation of get with your associations the communication to the government needs to be unified um i don't know i don't know if it was enough i mean we don't mm-hmm. know hopefully there were enough comments there i don't know if it's going to make an impact we're still waiting uh, but it was nice to see kind of that joining of forces uh, almost, you know, your Marvel super superhero comic book movie. Everybody joining forces, yeah, right, to to be unified. It was nice to see uh, from that stand, from an industry standpoint.
0: Yeah, yeah, especially with all the other uncertainty in our industry and um, it, kind of the lack of clear guidance from the manufacturers, from supply chain interruption, from some of the technology, the forced EV changes. I mean, there's so many things dealers are taking on and considering right now. This was just something that. You know, and we'll talk about this, and this is kind of the next thing I want to ask you is there there are really valid points in some of these proposed changes that Great. I think you and I both agree that transparency is a really good thing on both fronts. Um, and unfortunately, I think some of that is being overshadowed because there were so many unreasonable items listed within it. So talk about some of the things that you saw that are beneficial to both consumer and dealer. so i
1: I break the proposed rules out into two sections. Here's the rules that they propose that help define transparency to consumers. Everybody in our industry will agree there's nothing wrong with transparency, Mm -hmm. and we want transparency. Dealers that want to do it right will all agree transparency is the only way to do it right. The second half of the proposed rules is where we all disagree, and that's them dictating to us how to do it. And mm-hmm. and if you break them out into those two sections, right? Yes, we want transparency. We don't have a problem with that. You telling me how to be transparent in a manner in which they did not do appropriate research is where the is where we're we're having struggles with those proposed changes. So if you don't mind, let's talk about those proposed changes. Yes, yeah, please. The, 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 way, the way it happened. Yeah, the FTC, ha- they, the FTC proposes, here's the things we're going to go through, and here's the things we're going to review. Here's our areas of topic. They post that. Everybody sees them. They get an idea of what their focus is going to be. They do case studies. They reach out to, uh, they'll they reach out to the associations. They'll do roundtables with consumers. They do a lot of research. They propose changes. Everybody reviews those. Right There's usually a pretty long window. They go back, they review it. It's, we're talking anywhere between a year to year and a half sometimes for rules to come about. What caught everybody by surprise is these proposed changes came shortly after they had already published or said, here's our focus. Here's what's on the docket. This was not on the docket. So when they proposed, here's what's on the docket, and then these, these rules came out, that was the first shock the second is if you read what they put out as their reasoning from a mathematical standpoint the numbers don't make sense we could do an entire podcast on the numbers not making sense i and they're one of the statements they make is very clear the auto industry is one of the top three industries in terms of complaints from it from an ftc standpoint i don't disagree with that um the number of automobile purchases in a year, right? Add in the number of service departments and service claims Mm -hmm. that dealers have because in the complaints are service complaints. They include those as well. So if you take all of those transactions and add them up and divide them by the actual complaints, I don't even know if it would show up on a graph, right? It's Mm -hmm. that small of a percentage. But what they look at are what are the most complaints we received. Yep, and they put everything under automotive. So yeah. that's one of the things they start with. Now I believe so. That's so that's what shocked us. The you know the no no pre warning and then seeing the mathematical reasons behind it. No case studies. Uh, you know that they, they cite a couple of a, of a FTC enforcement actions. But there really hasn't been a large number of enforcement actions to justify the dramatic change. The reasoning behind the change to be able to make it simpler for the consumer, I don't think is what it's going to accomplish if the rules go into, in, into effect as is. You know, They want to reduce the paperwork. They want to reduce the time frame. If you look at the additional disclosure and process requirements they're adding, it will not do what they think it's going to do. I actually yeah, think totally it's going agree. to add, add addition, additional uh, additional additional. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's going to it's going to be additionally confusing, mm-hmm. and I think it's going to add length to the process. The other thing it's going to do is the cost for a dealership to be able compliant under the new rules today. If if the let me start over. If the new rules go into effect. The cost to be compliant, I think, will be significant for dealers. If I, I they totally go into agree. effect as it, yeah.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. When I was reading that, I, I, was, I was one. It, 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 our industry is so integrated, but it's integrated poorly from a, a DMS, a manufacturer, a product provider, um, a menu provider a uh, a service provider. I mean, there's so many facets that these proposed changes touches. I was thinking, well, first we got to get, first you got to get everyone integrated on the back end if you're going to make this work. And right. And the disclosures that are set at each stage of the negotiation or the purchasing process, you have to pull all of that information from so many different facets, because again, they kind of, they lumped in product sales with accessory sales and there's no discernment between the two. So if you price mud flaps, bed liners, all weather floor mats, you're going through the same exact process. So now we're pulling, you know, third-party accessory information with third-party product or protection product information. Then with your DMS system, And it's like, you you know, just the process to get all of those to integrate, you and I both know what the integration on the back end of all these systems look like, and it's not easy. Um, And the cost to take that on is responsible to each individual provider. But the sad thing for the dealer is that that cost is passed on to the dealer. So then our cost of doing business is significantly higher. I couldn't agree with you more that the length of the transaction is only going to get longer throughout all this. And what is, I think the intent is to, enhance customer satisfaction and protection is going to provide just the opposite. Um, we may oh. be more transparent in some regard, but it's really going to just make this a more painful process than some people already perceive it.
1: hundred percent agree. And let me expand on what you were saying. The cost yeah. to integrate just in the finance office is we're not there yet. And how long have we been trying to get there? That's a great long time. hmm the rules require documentation pretty much to start the minute the customer says, what is, what's the price of the vehicle, which you know for a lot of dealerships is BDC. Mm -hmm. Yep. So if we can't even integrate fully from a finance, how do we get that from BDC till the end? Yep. Right. I mean, these disclosure requirements start the minute somebody says, what's the price of the vehicle? Yeah. Great point. Yep. Right. So, and let's talk and let's, if you don't mind, let's for, yeah, from please. the rules, let's talk about transparency. I do believe there needs to be steps. Uh, we need to integrate transparency from BDC to sales. Right. I think mm-hmm. in the post COVID environment, we have seen an increase of complaints and complaints that we didn't normally receive in the past. Okay. Shortage of inventory. Right. I, I go online. I'm I'm online at my computer at my house. I'm talking with BDC. Is this car available? Yes, it's available. What is the cost? MSRP is $36,000. i am like, great. I get in my car. I drive two hours to the store. I get to the store. Somebody already bought it before I got there because we have low inventory. Or I get there and find the dealer has a market value adjustments, required addendums, right? That's where we've seen a large increase in complaints. Or I get to the store and find out the dealer requires in-house financing. I have to have a trade-in. Right not, And I'm not saying you should or should not do those practices, but that's where a lot of those complaints that, you know, those new complaints that we're receiving is in that miscommunication from I've asked if there is a vehicle and when I get to the actual store. So yeah. from a transparency standpoint, we need to be clear. Advertising. Right. We're, I mean, there was a manufacturer that ran a lease ad for a specific vehicle. I called dealers. I'm in Dallas and Fort Worth. I could not find a dealer within two and a half hours that actually had that model on the line. Wow. How many people saw that ad, drove to the dealership to only find out because of shortage of inventory, nobody actually had that model of vehicle available.
0: And that's from the manufacturer level
1: doing You're the advertising. Correct. Wow. You're correct. So I think, and, and now I did reach out to a dealer in a different state and they said, oh, we have lots of those. So, you know, but the manufacturer didn't know that in Dallas-Fort Worth, we didn't have it, but maybe in California they did. So, but once again, that's another area of those new complaints that we've started to see. And if you look at some of the rule requirements under the advertising rules, there needs to be more transparency around advertising in vehicles that you actually have available. So you can see where some of that's addressed. Transparency in that matter, I think needs to happen.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree
1: more. And I think, like you said earlier, I think the industry agrees with that. The
0: industry wants it um, and and needs to be provided a clear-cut path of what that really means um, and takes some of the subjectivity out of transparency and just say black and white. And I do think there is some language in this that does somewhat do that, but it's not as clear as it needs to be. And it's certainly not as efficient or as clean as it needs to
1: be, in my opinion. I 100% agree with you.
0: Right, there's yeah. a lot
1: of terms that they throw out that they're going to have to actually provide some definitions on, right? If they're if they're going to put these rules into effect, yeah. I, I think the the biggest feedback that we received and the one that we communicated as well was you have a lot of rules on the books that aren't enforced already. Maybe the focus should be enforcing current rules before we focus on new rules. Yep. Right, and I've heard a lot of the dealers. You know, not a lot, but I've some of the dealers said if they can't enforce the current rules, you know, why do I even care about the new rules if they can't even enforce what's on the books? Not the right mindset, but they're not wrong in what they're saying.
0: Yep, yep, absolutely. So you know, obviously, just the way you're speaking on on here with this conversation, and really the roadshow that you've been on, probably the better part of the last nine months, to be fair, um, is you really have become kind of a de facto spokesperson for the dealer body on these proposed changes and what it actually means to the store. Because like you said earlier, dealers were reading through it. They weren't exactly sure what it meant for them, their situation, their store, their staff. Um, And I know you've had a lot of one-on-one conversations, a lot of dealer group conversations, a lot of association conversations. You know, how, how do one, how do you feel being in the limelight on such a critical and pivotal topic at such a critical
1: and pivotal time in our industry? We were talking before the call started about sports. I felt like put me in coach. That's kind of how I feel, right? I felt like that, you know, we work hard. We believe in what we do. I'm very passionate about what I do. Uh, I run a nonprofit association for a reason. I believe in the purpose of AFIP, not just in terms of certifying, but what it does for the industry. Um, And as that passion, I enjoy reading. I enjoy learning, talking to other professionals so i felt like that if you put in the work it's nice to get to an opportunity where you can actually showcase kind of what i've been preparing for we knew yep. at some point the government would get aggressive and compliance would take over you know as the main topic of conversation so i'm glad that i was ready available and i'm really enjoying this opportunity to talk about how we can better our industry and how <clears throat> excuse me and how we can be advocates for our industry, because I do believe there are a lot of dealers doing it right. Mm-hmm. A lot of dealers care about customer satisfaction. They want to be transparent. And those are the dealers that as AFIP and personally, I want to represent from an industry standpoint and unify their voice that there are people trying to do it right. Yep. Right. Yep. Two or three government actions does not dictate who we are as an industry. Yep.
0: Yeah, and and certainly you know we're at a very different time but this feels somewhat similar although I think you know the connectivity and the inf- the flow of information is certainly at a different pace but you know coming into the great recession after the financial crisis was the last sweeping change in regulation that I certainly was an active part in with yeah. the red flag rules the original safeguards the Gramm-Leach-Bliley where does this compare to that event in your opinion From pace of play, disruption of standardized business, because I didn't really think that changed the transaction all that much from a customer or a dealer level.
1: It didn't, and I'm. I think what we're seeing today is we have to, we actually have to have action, right? If we look at previous government rules that have come out, they didn't. We know we needed to have them, right? Dealers, it took dealers a long time to adopt those changes. And I think what we're seeing in today's environment is that we actually have to take action, right? Red flag safeguards, brand, leave, those were all sweeping changes. Dealers mm-hmm. needed to take action, but there wasn't an overwhelming push for dealers to be compliant by the deadline that we're seeing in today's environment. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think the biggest thing that I'm seeing from the government is um, you're going to have to actually follow these rules, Right. And that's what I think the big difference is from now to what you're talking about is we're starting to see dealers understand that these rules need to be followed, and I can tell you the amount of interaction we're having with dealers now on how do we be compliant is much greater than what we saw back when those rules run in, went into effect. Yeah. Um, I mean, we teach this information, and I would you know we were still saying how are we five, six, seven, eight years past when the safeguards rule went into effect and dealers still don't have what they're supposed to have in place. Yep. Today's environment, we still run into dealers that are not compliant with those original guidelines from 2003 and 2008. Yeah. Unbelievable. So I think so true. Totally agree. Yeah. So, but in your, and I would say from you, what you do, I think I've heard more from you and some of the other agents than I did back then because dealers are saying, all right, what do we need to do to be compliant so we're seeing a greater not i don't want to say desire because nobody really wants to go through the hoops but we're seeing a greater ac- a need from the dealer to actually take action to be compliant and be ready prior to the prior to those previous changes
0: yeah yeah so that, that you brought up a couple of things is one you know the fines and the punitive nature of all of these and it and you're right they were out there but dealers really weren't being assessed the fines. I mean, there was a couple were. bad actors back then, but that certainly has changed this last year. And there's been some headline cases that have come out. Um, and certainly we're not going to name names yeah. and anything no. like that. But, um, you know, I think that that is helping the adaptation of some of these rules and the dealer conversations and certainly has upticked our, you know, involvement level and in the communication we want to have with the dealer. But maybe speak to high level, just what some of those cases were really about and why they were, why they really thrust this into the national spotlight within
1: the dealer body. But it's, and let's tie in kind of what you said, and then I'll answer your question. Yeah. But if you look at the enforcement action on these dealers, one of the things they were all required to do is put processes in place. Right? When you look at these dealers that have been fined in the enforcement action, and some of them there's, we could go down, there's a list of things that they were fined for but one of the requirements they all have to do is put some type of process in place. And I, it's not exciting, but we talk about it all the time. Process, 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 mm-hmm. right. You know, as I talk with, you know, as I we're raising kids and kids in the house, one of the things we talk about is it's the boring things that'll make you successful in life. Right. There's yep. parts, there's yep. parts of our life that we like to do. That's exciting, but what makes us, good at what we do is we do the boring things first and we do them right. Yep. And I think process, process, process speaks to that. If we look at some of the government actions and there's two different ways to look at this. So let's, we can look at the, some of the things that they were fined for just simply as an enforcement action, right? Uh, junk fees. They were charging more for a product than what the government felt like the value of that product actually was excessive markups. Which is scary if they're going to get into our pricing, but that's a different conversation. Yep. Right. Uh, lack of disclosure, right? Uh, Tying rate to product. Yep. C- customer, whether they said it or not, the customers believed that they had to buy the product to get the rate. Yep. So, one of the things we learned through this is that uh, disclosure is both verbal and visual. Gone are the days that just because that's on the screen means I properly disclosed it. Right. That's an old car saying, right. It's on the paperwork. It's on the screen. Gone are those days. Disclosure is now verbal visual. Um, So those are some of the reasons the dealer has been fine. But the biggest area that I think we've seen the enforcement action has to do with disparity, whether it be on price, of the vehicle, price of the product or markup over buy rate. Yep. Right. And that's where policy comes into play. What the government's looking at is, are we treating people of a protected class fairly compared to those people that are of an unprotected class when all the situations are similar? Yep. So dealers have to have processes in place to make sure that happens. Um, And that's a hard thing to do. And it's a hard thing to prove. And it's an expensive thing for a dealer to prove. The Mm -hmm. government knows that. Right. One of the one of the dealers that were uh, one of the cases, there was a large fine of about ten and a half million dollars. The dealer could have fought that. Right. I saw an estimate that the cost to fight that and to pay for uh, somebody to come in and do the math to try to fight it would have been close to five million dollars. Oh, geez. Right. So what so the dealer looks at it. Do I fight it? Do I pay it? Right. Same yep. thing with one. Same thing with the dealer on the East Coast. That was fine. Right. Half of the if they would have fought it and done the math to try to win the case, it would have cost more than half of what the fine was. Wow. So dealers, I mean, dealers do that calculation. They do that. Yeah. Um, so the disparate pricing is a difficult one. And, and you got to protect yourself from that type of government uh, audit or government action and you got to have that's where the process come into place. And I know as we close we'll get into processes in yep. place. One of the things that I thought was telling is uh, you know the head of the CFPB spoke at NIADA. and one of the things that he said that was made it's a comment that I don't know if, if it was meant to have the impact that it did on me, but the comment was all of the enforcement actions that we've assessed, have all been driven by some type of complaint. Hmm. And I think that if we stop and we, it's a, a subtle comment. Yep. But if we think about the impact of that, how many dealerships today have a complaint management system? Hmm. Great question. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. And if everything's driven from consumer complaint, our focus should be one of two things process and managing complaints. Yep. And it's something we can do as we talk, we can deep dive in, but I yeah. think as we, cause we could talk, we can go through all the cases. We can talk about everything that they were doing. Yeah. But what caused that? How did they get, how did the government get word to go into that store? Yep. It was all driven by a complaint.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that is a great point. Um, and, and definitely I think something that needs to be looked at because it it then largely becomes avoidable because it's a self managed and and truly serving a self interest at that point. Hundred um, percent and really should be addressed. So uh, hopefully, and I'm confident you will continue to lead the charge on that and education educate the dealers uh, as well as the agents and the product providers that hey let's just let's get into the uh, complaint resolution business versus the regulation fighting business um Correct. it's a much more equitable path for everybody to be
1: involved in Agreed. And then, no and like i said i mean it's, we could spend a full podcast on just how to do it yep but but and and just to throw that in there i have a lot of dealers that say i manage complaints each gm has it yep. i leave it up to my stores right look at the last 3 fines large dealer groups one or two stores were busted yep Right. So I think your complaint system needs to be under the compliance officer and needs to be at a centralized person that has oversight over the entire group.